This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, this is not 1984. Avoiding dystopia or false utopia spilling into real life. <laughs> so this week is brought to you by Jules rereading 1984. <laughs> yeah, um, I, it's like it was on my school reading list back when I was 13. I, I'm amazed it made it onto my school reading list because considering the convent's policy on, on the girls reading anything <laughs> about sex, anything obliquely referenced sex, I can only assume none of the nuns yeah. had actually read it. <laughs> I'm not going to say it went over my head when I was 13, but reading it again properly as an adult, the insidious levels of horror in mm. it sort of really hit me. And I think somehow you need to have a bit more life experience to really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of these books that sort of gets more and more horrific as time goes on. Yeah, and you and you read it like it's really bad the first time you read it. And sorry, when I say really bad, I, I don't mean the book is very bad. I mean that the the content, the events within the book are very bad. Um, but I think also, you know, with as you also get older, you start to watch more of the news. You start to be a little bit more aware of the world and the and the context of things. You start to see a little bit more of the really frightening nuance in 1984 that makes it such a powerful book. And I mean, there's a reason why sales for 1984 dramatically went up during Trump's presidency in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, we'll obviously go into a bit more detail about 1984 in a minute. I mean, thinking about it, though, it's not the only example of its kind, is it? I mean, there's Fahrenheit 4571, I think, 451 and um, Swan Song and Grass by Sherry S. Tepper and very, you know, there's, there's lots of dystopian fiction out there. There's yeah. lots of post-apocalyptic fiction out there. Um, and, yeah. you know, there has been since the 50s and 60s, definitely. But 1984's got a staying power that some, you know, some of the others you sort of grow out of a bit. It doesn't matter that the book is set in 1984 yeah. and the fact it was written sort of 20 to 30 years before that and... Or even the fact that I lived through 1984, <laughs> the actual year 1984. I was alive. I was aware. Um, I would have been about five. So admittedly, I wasn't necessarily completely tuned in politically, <laughs> but I was aware of things going on. And you know, my my experience of the 80s was not big screens and people massed into squares and fed propaganda. No. Thankfully, I'm really, really glad it wasn't. <laughs> Most of the things we were most... I mean, aside from the bad 80s haircuts, which looked really awful to me at the time. <laughs> shoulder pads. Shoulder pads in women's clothing. You could not buy clothing for girls or, you know, for, for a moderately sized sort of seven-year-old. You could not buy clothing without, like, shoulder pads in it. I fucking hated <laughs> shoulder pads, man. I really, really did. So, you know, the 80s had its own particular brand of ills. Um... But what I will say is growing up in the 80s, I 
and many of the people from my generation who I've spoken to said, yeah, actually, this, this was a thing. This was a thing that was a fear in the background all the time. And the fear in the background all the time mm. was that there was going to be a nuclear holocaust. That was a genuine, this is something that's going to happen. Obviously, we'd yeah. just come sort of to the end of the Cold War. Um, there are lots of nukes around. You know what? There are nukes still floating around out there somewhere that people have basically, inverted commas, lost. Yeah. As in, we don't know who's got them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrifying thought. Thanks for that. It's terrifying. I mean, there is an, there's an atom bomb that got dropped accidentally somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Nobody knows quite where it is. It didn't go off. It's still alive. It's down there. Oh, no. So, you know, th th there's some scary shit. That That's kind of what was in the background. That was the background radiation of the 80s that I grew up with. And it's really noticeable in the children's fiction of the time because the serious gritty fiction talked about nuclear holocaust. Yeah. So I grew up reading a lot of that as well. So um, Louise Lawrence's Children of Dust, which is a brilliant book, but incredibly harrowing. <laughs> really, really harrowing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't also just present in western society either i feel like it's worth mentioning this is not something which was no. just that you just found in the uk and in america i mean the film akira came out in 1988 and obviously it's based on a manga which is older and that that obviously there's a whole fear about kind of nuclear kind of power there obviously they haven't framed it in the same way but that you know that's what it's about and it's it's a very dystopian society it's really terrifying definitely um and i you know i will say that in 1986 the chernobyl power plant went well it went into meltdown and yeah. you know okay russia managed to keep it quiet for a few weeks but not that long and there no. are still places in wales where you know, the, the level of radiation is too high for you to graze sheep, for example. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that the free radicals and things just, just got brought across on the wind. So, yeah, I mean, it's really scary. I, I actually remember the whole Chernobyl thing, and I was just old enough to ask my dad what that really meant, mm. meaning I was the sort of kid that wanted to know what nuclear fission was <laughs> and why this was a bad thing. And as I got... And it just stayed with me, and it stayed with me as I started properly studying biology and things at primary school and then even more properly into senior school and uh, then you start talking about genetics and dna and, and how the effect it has on that and you know bear in mind in my childhood they hadn't fully mapped yeah. the human genome yet so there was still this horrible possibility of <laughs> what if all this this stuff kind of um causes mass mutations which we know it, mm. it, it absolutely can do um, not in the Akira sense, no. which you know would be slightly more interesting, but <laughs> equally, <as laughs> but in a, a really horrific, disfiguring yeah. sense. Um, it's it's also worth mentioning that, as well as obviously the nuclear side of things, um, there was also the fear of the surveillance state, and it's quite interesting because a lot of people who read 1984 say, "Oh, well, this was the fear of kind of the future, and we've met it." And they seem to misunderstand what it is to write a dystopia during a time. And dystopia will reflect the fears of the era. And they'll reflect them usually by ex accentuating them. Not That's the wrong word. But by exaggerating them. By showing what could happen. Particularly if it's meant to be set in the future. Bearing in mind when 1984 was written, um, it wasn't... The, and, and 
the title 1984, the two dates were not actually that far away from each other. There was that fear of surveillance states, um, you know, during the 1950s, um, as technology continued to improve, as people kind of felt like they were being watched, like their phones were being sort of um, tapped into, um, that, that the government was watching them, or that if it wasn't the government, it was, you know... Russian spies or somebody else that you know that fear was alive it was very real yeah definitely um and you know the third thing I would say growing up in the 80s was a fear of disease yeah because that was the advent of the AIDS epidemic mm -hmm. yeah. and I will say quite genuinely and being a child in the 80s that was a very very scary thing to live through even though it didn't really affect my life at all other than the really terrifying adverts on yeah, television terrifying adverts <laughs> Um, that I mean, if you go and find them, they're probably on YouTube. You'll probably look at them now and sort of laugh a little bit. But at the time, um, when I get, I don't know. At some point, I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to make Madeline watch the adverts of my childhood, whereby they tell you not to play by power lines and things like that. Because I think she's just going to look at it and think I lived in a dystopian <laughs> nightmare, basically. Because that is what those adverts. I've seen the adverts like. of what to do if there's a nuclear fallout, a nuclear bomb. Just get under your desk. Um, <laughs> yeah, that'll help. <laughs> yeah, see the sort of the, the 60s stop, drop and roll type thing that they get under your desk. It's kind of like, oh no, if there's a nuclear meltdown or a nuclear bomb or something, you're all absolutely fucks, Phil. We're just telling yes, you to do this so you've got something to do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, I've gone off a little bit on a tangent, but my point, I think, is that every generation grows up with some really, really yeah. big cataclysmic, this will be the world type fear. And it never really turns out quite how you think. I mean, if you go back to sort of the 50s, it was mm -hmm. the whole, as Madeline said, the reds under the bed, the surveillance state type thing, which, mm -hmm. you know, permuted and that's understandable. It was the Cold War. Um, and the, obviously that's where the whole the, the idea of a nuclear war came from it's yeah. kind of like oh, well what if Russia and America really decided to go at it kind of thing but the whole point being that if everybody have nukes then nobody will use them kind of thing um, there's some yeah. flawed logic in there but mostly yeah. it seems to have worked out <laughs> fairly well so far um, but but yeah that there's that there's always this thing and you know if you go back to the Victorian era there was a big fear about the the youth becoming more progressive and leaving things like classics and stuff behind and they become therefore becoming stupider and you know there's always something there's always something an older generation is saying oh well this will be the reality kind of thing i can see this evil coming yeah but there seems to constantly be a uh, <laughs> this fear of of the youth being more stupid i'm like no no just young people are stupid that's that's their prerogative they're learning <laughs> in a meetings about it. Um, no, but yeah, that's that's just what young people do of every generation. They're figuring stuff out. You know, uh, it's just as simple as that. And yeah, the the mass identity crisis that always comes with rapid change is something that has come around in waves and waves. And we've talked about this in other episodes. But you know, the whole sort of oh god, everything's progressing so fast. We're going to lose touch with our past with our cultural identity. Um, and in a world where everything gets smaller, which it has done, you know, we're more connected to, with one another than we ever have been. There are these questions of identity and, you know, a part of that also comes in with cultural appropriation, etc. Um, 
so it's not necessarily that these things are new ideas, but as time moves on, different things come to the forefront. Cultural genocide and the effects of that, uh, the pandemic as it is now, these are different things which are going to come forward during different periods, and these are going to be reflected in our dystopia. But as Jules has pointed out, it's not very often that the dystopias that we write actually come to pass fully, though I think there are quite a few people who would argue that the whole 1984 thing, we're almost living in that reality right now. There's definitely some parallels, and we will get onto that a bit later. So um, some general terminology yeah. first, because we talked about dystopia and false utopia, and the two things are kind of distinct, even though there's a lot of crossover. So what what yeah. is the difference, basically? Well, in narrative terms... A dystopia is generally caused by a huge world-altering event, so it's the same with post-apocalyptic fiction. Or it can be, it can either be in the middle of the world of the world-altering event. So, for example, Stephen King's *The Stand*, where everyone's dying of super flu. <laughs> Sorry if that's a bit on the nose right now. Um, uh, or something like *Earth Abides*, where this it's set after most of the population of the world has been killed off. Or yeah. you're, you're having impact events, so like the end of the world running club, for example. So there are meteors mm -hmm. hitting the earth and it's actually not terribly safe to stay in that part of the world kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'd even argue, and I, I've never seen anybody kind of take me up on this, and that's fine because this is my own weird little brain. But this is that Watership Down in its own right is a dystopian story because the rabbits experience a world-altering event. Um, you know, man is their meteorite or their, their Great Plague, or what have you, and the Sandalford Warren just gets completely destroyed. Yeah. With just this ragtag book of a bunch of lone survivors finding somewhere else, and then eventually finding what is basically a, a communist warren to try, which they break into. So, yeah, it, it hits a lot of the marks of dystopian yeah. fiction. No, I, I'd agree with you. So, yeah, so dystopian fiction, as we said, um, sometimes it's it's not a real thing. So, we you know, we have... Bio, you know, chemical, biological, nuclear warfare, etc. And then sometimes that's represented in things like a zombie apocalypse. The chance of an actual zombie apocalypse happening are fairly limited, but you know that it's representative of something else. Yeah, basically, as long as nobody starts frigging around with the genome for orphiocordyceps unilateralis. The zombie apocalypse thing is, is fairly slim. You know someone out there so. is listening to this and gone, well, you know what I'm going to be doing with my Friday after Friday night. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Let's hope that they're not actually bright enough to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, so in dystopia, well, the setting initially, and it will generally hit you in the face, yes. is quite bleak or very bleak even. You look at things like The Walking Dead, you've, you've literally got dead people <laughs> everywhere. Everything's falling apart because you can't maintain it because the population of living yeah. humans is so small now. Um, and it's concerned with revealing humanity once it's been stripped of its yeah. current civilizational rules and mores and things. Um, the major themes are usually sort of hunger, struggle, survival yeah. and redemption. Absolutely. Um and then you have the false utopia. So the false utopia, and I think a lot of people are fairly familiar with this, is basically everything seems fine, even great on the surface, um, but the people who don't conform 
disappear at night. You know, it's, oh, well, this is a haven, but it seems to be that people who try to speak out keep disappearing. Um, it usually involves a highly organized governing structure who essentially control everything. So it's a, and I say this in inverted commas, benevolent dictatorship of some kind. Um, this may or may not be after a world-altering event. So sometimes it's, well, everything was bad, so now we've got certain rules in place and everything is good, except for those who don't conform or don't fit in with our ideals. Um, and at the centre of this, we have lies, disinformation, conformity, and what happens when you challenge the system as major themes. Um, and as we've said, there's lots of crossover between these two. Um, go back to Wardship Down, it starts off as a dystopian novel and then you end up in a false utopia when you're at the when you're at the other Warren. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh yeah, everybody's safe, everybody gets to feed, everybody gets to go above ground, but you can't do anything outside what your mark is, is allowed to do at that particular time. There's no freedom, there's no choice. No. So it's safety, but at a very high price. It's also it, it plays this really interesting idea which um, I think the reason it makes people uncomfortable is it, it makes that idea, which is, it, it reminds us that um, at any point, any of us could be criminals based on very, very small yeah. things. At any point, any of us could be classed as criminals. And how we treat criminals um, makes a big difference. So in these utopian states, they tend to have, you know, capitalist punishment. It, you know, people just people disappear. Everyone disappears. There's, you know, um, that the, they don't want around. They get murdered. They get brainwashed. They get something like that. And that's a terrifying concept because it basically shows this idea that there is no freedom of expression. And even if you yourself happen to agree with everything that's happening at that time, so you might look at the society and go, "Yeah, I agree with all of this." The idea that if you don't agree with it, you will be killed is terrifying. Or your family will be killed. Or, or your, yeah. Yeah. Or, you, or you'll get sent somewhere that you really don't want to get sent. Yeah. Um, for example, I mean, you see these sort of things in, say, the Hunger Games books. Mm. And it, it, you know, you have to go to the books for this, I think, because it, it's much more nuanced and well thought the films are very entertaining but it's much more nuanced and well thought out in the books i think you miss something if you don't if you just try to go from the films yeah in that respect um but let's not pretend that these things don't actually happen in in certain parts of the world as well so we're obviously not in the middle no. of a zombie apocalypse we we are in the middle of a global pandemic which hasn't so far turned out to be as bad as it might have yeah. done which is good you know uh, if you consider the Black Death killed off a half of all of Europe's population. Yeah. Back in 1347. So, you know, we're doing quite well in that respect. The Spanish influenza outbreak, again, much, much higher body mm -hmm. count. Um, obviously, that's not the only thing to consider. And there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of good that's kind of come out of the COVID thing yeah. as well. Um, but when we're talking about people disappearing in the night, well, there are governments where you literally cannot speak out or that will happen. Or if you happen to be the wrong ethnicity or the, you know, the wrong religion, think about the Rohingya mm -hmm. Muslims, which China are gleefully, the Chinese government are gleefully rounding up and putting into underground yeah. concentration camps. So, you know, this is this is not me having a go at no. the Chinese people as a whole, who are, who are absolutely 
all of the ones I've met who are, who are absolutely lovely. The Chinese government, the regime, yeah. is allowing things like and this to we, happen. And the thing is, it's not isolated either. It's not, oh, that only happens in other countries. Uh, it, it doesn't happen here in the West. It does. It does. On different levels, there are different things which are happening. People who do disappear. It's closer to home. Um, and that's really scary. Sort of, and speaking about English politics, and I don't want to get too much into this, the recent, you know, um, protesting bill has caused a lot of people to worry a lot because of the implications of what it could mean in future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's also worth saying that we don't, ever, and we never have technically ever had the, the freedom of speech, the right of the freedom of speech. That That's an American concept. We don't actually have that in the UK. It's not written into any sort of constitution. No. Um, it's just that it's unconscionable, particularly, and, you know, it's inconceivable <laughs> to us as a as a country as a, a group of people to not be able to say what we think and it's pretty much been inconceivable for us to not be able to grumble etc on some level since the peasants revolt mm. you know if we hadn't had that series of revolts and things around that time if france hadn't had its series of revolutions in the 18th century and various other places have all gone through this process of no we don't like the government restricting our personal freedoms and things and we're not going to stand for it and we are willing to fight and die yeah. and kill people in order to to preserve those freedoms so um it really depends i have to say that that's something that china if you look at chinese history has never really I, had sorry but sorry just um with the freedom because we have freedom of expression though under the human rights act yeah, but it's not the same as the constitutional right to express your opinion that is written into the American Constitution. Into the American Constitution. So okay. if somebody ever decided, if you said, if you stood outside number 10 Downing Street and started slagging off Boris Johnson, <laughs> Boris Johnson got pissed off about it enough to take you to court, um, you wouldn't actually have anything written in law that would support you. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you can't point to paragraph ten, subsection B, and say, "Well, this is this is my rights. This is this is my rights in the Constitution." Right, got it. It's just that in the West, it's kind of a given that we are allowed to to speak our minds, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, so long as we're not um, which is, slandering. Yeah, you can't. You can't be slanderous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go much further, because you know we're dangerously close to conspiracy theory territory here, and. While I enjoy a good conspiracy theory, um, without generally buying into them, I would like to say that, yes, the idle speculation is lots of fun, but you need to be able to draw a line. And um, <laughs> I think the thing is, if you really think about, if you, if you start thinking conspiracy theory on a on a massive global level, it's just it's impractical. Um, look, it, so look at your own look at your own government. If you genuinely think that someone in that government could actually arrange a global level conspiracy, um, you you might want to take a take a bit of a reality check because it, it it's just not very likely at all. In fact, it, it's so unlikely that you, you've got more chance of being struck by lightning it's, and it's strange because winning the lottery on the same day. Conspiracies do take place, but they take place on a smaller scale. And the thing that always makes me laugh is just the idea that there is one giant ha like. No, we are all fumbling in the dark through life. The fact that you think there's anyone who's intelligent enough 
<laughs> to be able to organize all of that given the unpredictability of human beings i think that there are conspiracies on a smaller level um within smaller groups um and they, this has been proven to be true we've we've seen conspiracies Definitely. um in place we've seen you know government cover-ups and stuff like that um but on a grander scale it does start to get a little bit um questionable so that's our that's our dd disclaimer yeah it, it's basically impossible to keep something it's impossible to keep some of the smaller corruptions yeah. and things quiet these days so imagine trying to keep an entire global domination type thing imagine how many people you'd have to have on your payroll for example to get that to get that off the ground and then yeah nobody's yeah, going to talk it, it yeah just, right it's like the, the whole moon landing wasn't real thing the amount of people you'd have to pay off to pretend that it wasn't the amount of people is is unspeakable <laughs> The amount of people that it, and 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 not one of them came yeah, forward. It, not one of them. I have my serious doubts. Um, anyway, so what draws people to this kind of fiction? Why would we want to make ourselves so miserable with dystopian and false utopian fiction? Yeah. Um, as a big fan of dystopian and false utopian type fiction, um, for me. Yeah. I I personally really enjoy the human struggle side of things. Um, and I like this whole sort of taking your characters and really putting their backs against the wall and seeing what's left kind of thing. It's that stripping away of, a of everything except essentials. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and something which is quite interesting to me is also the way that dystopia has been framed with the human struggle in mind um, and how that also reflects reflects feelings you know there was there, we went through a period where dystopian fiction was it was just and everything was bad and the bad guys won as it were you see it in a lot of sci-fi and things like that it's just the, the, the morose sci-fi yeah Se 70s particularly 70s sci-fi and it's just kind of and you're, you're waiting for the twist at, you know nowadays anyway you're waiting for the twist at the end where everything kind of gets resolved and there's a happy ending and it's kind of like and now i will die and it's kind of like yes not robot overlords will take <laughs> over and it's like what, what, what? that's a, that's <laughs> a really crap story what? Or, or they think you know they've won but they haven't or you know stuff like that and then we went through this big thing after the hunger games and again the reason why the hunger games was so popular was again this is dystopian fiction um but within it there's a very clear message which is that the youths are the ones who are going to save us. It's down to the young. And again, this appeals to the young people who are suddenly becoming very conscious of the world around them and going, what the hell is all of this? What have you done? You've ruined everything. This was a perfectly good planet. Now now look at it. Um, you know, and this, this sense that they were the ones, the adults were the ones who were in the failing and that the young people were the ones with a few trusted adults who were going to be able to make a difference. Um, but it was down to them and they had to really struggle against that. So, you, you know, you have these different ways in which the struggle is shown, which reflects the world. And I think that also pays into a large part of another reason people enjoy that this type of fiction and that is catharsis and different forms of catharsis which we need in the societies in which we live
yeah, definitely. Um, th there's something quite refreshing about spending a couple of hours with The Walking Dead. Not literally, but, you know, watching them. <laughs> watching them. Maybe reading the comics. And then coming back and like, actually, stuff isn't quite that bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. I gotta admit, um, I'm one of those people, and this is this is really important to remember, is that different people will get different kinds of catharsis from different things. Um, and this may be a little bit, again, the fact that Jules is a little bit older than me coming into it, um, which is that I get catharsis from a different kind of dystopian fiction. I don't get catharsis from the endlessly hopeless kind of situation. Well, you see, again, we're, we're back to the 1980s and the fact that I basically cut my, my eye teeth reading, um, oh yes, you're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust and then the mutated remains of humanity will rise up yeah. and inherit the earth kind of thing <laughs> it's like that's the air we breathed so yeah bleak looks pretty good bleak looks about right yeah uh, reminds me of my childhood says jules as she watches the walking dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't actually see any zombies in the 1980 well not that i'm aware of um and it, it, you know, it's also worth mentioning that another reason people like it is that some people just prefer bleak stories or settings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I kind of always really, you know, my favourite bit of a dystopian book is when you, you've actually got society more or less as it is, and then everything gradually starts to go to shit, and you get to watch the whole thing disintegrate. And I, I love that <laughs> bit. I can't explain why I love watching that happen. <laughs> no. Whereas I understand that other people find it. I mean, that's why I love The Stand so much. The first third of that book is watching everybody die of Captain Trips, um, which is awful. And, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. It's Stephen King, for God's yeah. sake. But it's just really that there's something really, really gripping about that. And then looking at how the survivors make a life after that. And the whole book is about morality and, and a bifurcation of morality as well, because you could argue that the people who end up on, on the, the dark man's side are kind of just a bit misguided. They're not actually fundamentally evil, a lot of them. So it's, I don't know, it's it's really yeah. interesting. But yeah, the whole world is going to shit. Like, I love the first season of The Walking Dead for that very reason. It's, it's strange because <laughs> the reason I liked The Walking Dead was the moments of humanity. Because I liked looking at them as people. Um, and the kind of the drama between them and uh, sort of going and the zombie bit that's just sort of this general wave in the background that just reminds you how terrible everything is um, but but I'm the complete opposite of Jules because that kind of sort of slow breakdown of society isn't cathartic for me at all I just find it inc incredibly anxiety inducing and then, you know, most people go, oh, that's that made me very anxious, but now it's over and I kind of relax, whereas I watch it and then I get to bed and I'm like, yep, that's reality now, that is where we're heading. Best prepare for the end of times. And I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, my brain will now wake me up with so, images yeah, so of that future at 3am. Another reason that people kind of like it is that it actually, for some people, requires less of a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, um, I think I think for some people it is, again, as, as we've said, like the human element, but also I think maybe they're a bit cynical and they can more easily embrace a world where 
for example, like Utopia, where they're talking about a genetically designed uh, virus that will kill off a certain number of people and reduce the population so that we don't end up all like murdering each other for water in sort of 20 to 30 yeah. years' time. Um, they can find that much more relatable than, um, than, than something like The Walking yeah, Dead, for absolutely. example. Um, and there's also, you know, people might enjoy it if they're feeling quite disenfranchised with their own life. I mean, there, there is a kind of a sick sense of, of um, amusement if, you know, for instance, you spend your entire time basically saying, no, global warming is real, global warming is real, for the love of God, please, we've got to do something about it. Um, and then you watch a film where you see a whole bunch of people who are like, ah, it'll be fine, and then it's absolutely not fine, and you're like, ha, ha! I told you, you didn't actually tell them, not in the film verse, but there's this, there's this sense of vindication, <laughs> I think, that comes with it. Yeah, um, I think there is definitely that. And I think, again, it, it's a relatability thing. And it's something that I hear as a librarian. Um, <laughs> I am a librarian uh, from, from, from young people. So, you know, when teenagers aren't busy doing other stuff outside the library, which they ought not to be doing, when they actually come inside and talk to me, um, a lot of them feel kind of disconnected from the things that are going on. So, you know, there are choices and things being made that are going yeah. to affect them that they're having no say in. And by the time that they might get a say in them, it's not that the damage is done. It's just it's a much bigger hill to climb kind of thing. So the idea of, hey, you made your choices and the world's gone to shit, ha, ha, yeah, ha, is absolutely. kind of quite comforting, I think, for yeah. some of them. Um, and obviously anger comes into that too. This is not all teenagers either. This is, you know, very particular. I think people forget that quite a lot of teenagers do have political opinions and things. I and I think, you know, the voting age quite possibly should be lowered to 16. Because, you know, if you're if you're being forced to live with something, I think you should have a say in how who who gets to who gets to to drive the truck kind of thing. Yeah. No, I can I completely agree. I'm with you on that. And also it's bullshit that we can potentially send a 16-year-old off to war, but they're not allowed to drink um, or vote. And it's just like, well, that's just really stupid, isn't it? Yeah. We've got to have a standard here. We've got to... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so what does dystopian and false utopian fiction have to say about today? Um, yeah, I'm going to mostly be riffing off 1984 here, but if you want to put in on anything else that's dystopian, <laughs> then great. But I want to talk about a specific part of 1984 where <laughs> basically it one of its most terrifying aspects, aside from the very active um, and unpleasant, horribly effective class system imposed by the Ministry of Love, is the way it weaponizes weaponizes information and disinformation and it really troubles me the more i research it the more i find out how much this is done to us today um and it's done to us by each other as well so like nobody is completely guilt-free on this one sometimes it's done accidentally yeah. sometimes it's done very deliberately um so i don't know how recently you've read 1984 but you could be forgiven as you read it for thinking no one would ever allow this to happen you know because it's so yeah. extreme by the time you get to the, the point in 1984 where 
you've got your very low class who can't ever climb any higher, who are basically uneducated, not very well fed, quite often die early in their lives. And then you've got the middle class who are always striving to get a little bit higher, but they're, they're basically living yeah. in, you know, the, basically a point system. And, you know, they're, they're, everyone, is, everyone is spying on everybody else. Um, it, it's very dangerous to even think of not conforming. And then you have, you know, the, the top guys who you don't really yeah. ever see, but, you know, behind the Ministry of Love, who are clearly living very nicely um, off, the, off the efforts of these other people, because the middle class aren't actually that much better off than the, the really low class. So you think, well, you know, that, that's so set in stone, we wouldn't ever let, allow it to happen. But the thing is, these things happen in insidious degrees. So... It's not like a government, yeah. it's not like the Ministry of Love, for example, came in overnight and went, we're changing all this, live with it, mm-hmm. and we're going to divide you up, and these five people are going to get to be sort of really rich, wealthy people and have families who are really rich and wealthy, etc. No. Um, you lot are going to be in the middle class, and the vast majority of you are going to be the plebs. Because no one would stand for that. These things happen really, really slowly. It's a gradual march. It's a war of attrition. And it, it's it's almost invisible because I think a lot of people don't kind of want to see these sort of changes yeah. happening. Well, it's like the tax system in, in the UK. The way that the ta- you know taxation works in the UK is that actually taxes tended to rise and there tended to be larger sort of taxation during times of war in order to pay for the war. Um, and what happened was, so far as I understand it, and I am simplifying things so much so that I get through this quickly, um, is essentially uh, the sort of the the government in Britain said, well, we, we want to introduce a tax, and everybody said, no, we don't want a tax, absolutely not. And they said, oh, look, look, no, we, we need to have a tax, absolutely not. I said, okay, but here's the tax. It's only going to be for the the highest earners the very very rich no one else is going to get taxed so just just the the upper class as it called we're only going to tax the upper class that's how the working class and it said and we're going to only tax the upper class but it'll benefit everybody and the lower class i say lower class you know what i mean is in that's what they were referred to as the working class and the middle class went okay all right all right yeah. okay so yeah they have extra money so they take a little bit to make everything better fine fine so this this law was then passed because they, they, they couldn't do it otherwise without it being voted in. So this law was then passed. A few years down the line they go, oh, we need a tiny bit more money, so we're just going to tax the very upper middle class. And everyone went, okay, well, I guess if it's just the upper middle class, that's alright. But they had their foot in the door. And within a few <laughs> few years, everybody's getting taxed. Um, and yeah. the way that taxation works in terms of, you know, like if you have corporations or um, assets or things like that, is that ultimately the 1% who are being taxed have now kind of created these loopholes, which means that they can't be taxed um, because corporations need to be protected also for, you know, different levels and stuff like that. There's reasons why those things are in place. And that is for the benefit of everybody. But unfortunately, the people who are actually benefiting it are the people right at the top. Whereas the people who are in the working class, who are in the middle class, um, who don't have assets in the same way, 
don't get to benefit from that, so they just get heavily taxed. Um, and that's all it took. It, it, it was a gradual thing where an idea which actually seemed quite reasonable allowed them to get a foot in the door and the change happened and now it's just the norm. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, as we've said, it's this, this gradual introduction of an institution through slow degrees. Um, I'm not... Um, what I'm going to say next is not slagging off social media or the people who use it. Social media can be great and it can be a brilliant way to connect with people. Um, I certainly can't give it up. As, as a writer, I need it to connect with people. Um, basically to sort of say, hey, I'm quite cool. You might like to buy my books. Um, <laughs> I write something. You... Without Hey, without social media, we would not be no, here. We, so. not, we would not be here. We would not be making a podcast for one thing. <laughs> But it's also subject, as many great tools, to lots of misuse. So it's it, it's really freaky the more I think about 1984 and the way misinformation was used and information was weaponized. Um, mm. The more it made me think of how social media functions in certain circles. So, for example, all through the book, up until a certain point, you believe that Britain, it's not Britain anymore, it's called something else now, I can't remember now. Anyway, but the, the land that was formerly known as Britain was at war with, they're saying that it was um, at war with East Asia. That's it. All the way through. And then literally mid-speech, mid-speech on hate day. Hate day, by the way, I'm just going to take a little break from what I was saying to explain hate day. Hate day is when you are supposed to give public demonstrations of hate for your enemies. I really want that to sink in. <laughs> and I want people to sort of think, hmm, is there anything that happens on social media <laughs> whereby, you know, a, an unplanned hate day kind of just happens mm. and you find yourself drawn into throwing criticism, throwing fuel on the fire because it's so easily done. So all this sort of like, we'd never allow this to happen. Well, actually, we kind of already are in some, some respects. Um, anyway, so midway through the speech on hate day, uh, someone passes a note to the man who's giving the speech and he looks at it and without breaking stride, he changes it from East Asia to Eurasia. We're at war with Eurasia. East Asia have always been our allies. Literally midway through, he gaslights the entire crowd and everybody in the crowd, there, there is sort of like a half a heartbeat pause and then everybody's like screaming hatred for Eurasia. Yeah. It, it's terrifying. And I've seen things change literally that quickly on social media one day somebody's really in and they're the voice of reason and then the next day somebody will misunderstand what they say or they'll say something in a way that's open to being misinterpreted and and that's it the, the wolves descend kind of thing yeah i think one of the crucial things that comes with that which is sort of shown in um 1984 is the way that social media um uses sound bites yes which is that it, it ha takes these really complex ideas um which you know have nuance need to be discussed are not perfect and it creates the simple the simple one sentence thing the simple one sentence which is easy to say easy to remember easy to reblog it appears on one photo um 
And it's, it's the, you know, it's the hashtag. It's the, we can summarize this in one word. And the problem is that most people then, when they engage with it, they are only engaging with that soundbite. They're not engaging with the larger aspect and the larger implications of what they're saying. They have whittled something which is incredibly complex and needs to be discussed into something which is simple and seems justified and easy and isn't actually necessarily any of those things. You know, it's very easy to say, well, we want one thing. And it also means that people end up, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, when when you say some one thing one day and then say the complete opposite, contradicting, they end up contradicting themselves. Um, because yeah. again... <laughs> It's just been whittled down. And it's something that does appear in 1984, where they have these like little posters which just say, you know, very simplified things. And all they need is for the plebs, as it were, to memorise the simplified things. But these simplified sound bites don't have meaning on their own, and they don't have power when they're taken out of context. But they have power in so much as, well, that's all I need to know, that's all I need to engage with. And it's something every single person on social media is guilty of. We are 100% guilty of it, because it's very easy to do. And it's very easy to get called up in the, oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that all of these are unjustified either. They can be 100% justified, but it's usually a very complex issue. Definitely. Um, and, you know, going back to our, our brief mention of conspiracy theory, the really scary thing here is that there is no shadowy world government cabal pulling the strings. There's nobody in charge. Nobody has made a master plan here. No one is flying this plane. Um, this is basically a case of we're being manipulated by an algorithm. Um, we're negatively biased, we've mentioned this in other podcasts, so we're more likely to pause on something that offends us than we are something that we like, or we'll pause for, I think, point something mm -hmm. of a second longer. This is noticed. <laughs> this is this is noticeable. This is this is something that the algorithm picks up on, and therefore it will then show you more of what you paused on. So you, you can go onto Twitter thinking, I like kittens and books and swords. And then you'll accidentally see something that annoys or offends you and you'll pause on it slightly longer. And gradually the kittens and swords and books will disappear from your feed yeah. <laughs> as you end up seeing more and more bad stuff. And the bad stuff will make you pause even longer. And you'll see, you just get into this negative, this positive feedback cycle yeah. with the end result being very, very negative for you and quite deleterious for your mental health. Yeah, it's the same, the, the YouTube algorithm, which is actually kind of scary because what happens is that let's say you want to kind of learn a little bit about something. You watch a video on YouTube. It will then, it will queue up basically the next kind of video and in, in thing, which is all based on, you know, the, the next sort of opinion. And what happens is that it's like a slide um, and the next video is a little bit more extreme. And the next video after that is a little bit yeah. more extreme. But you've also basically essentially created your own kind of echo chamber because you're only seeing things from that point of view. And you seem to be seeing lots and lots of people who are agreeing with that and kind of put your and, and you're only seeing one side of things. And there's an inherent trust, I think, as well, that comes with particularly videos because someone is talking to you and we want to trust people. Who are talking to us. We want to trust people if they sound intelligent, if they seem nice, if they're reaching and connecting to us as people. Um, and it's difficult to necessarily get the right information, so it's really easy it's, to be swept up in all of this. 
if they're endorsing what we might think or an opinion that we're teetering on holding kind of thing, if they're telling us we're right, we yeah. don't like to be told we're right. Okay, if you say that you don't like to be told you're right, then I'm going to assume <laughs> you're either delusional or a massive liar because we all do. Um, that's fine. That's a natural human thing. We want the universe to make sense. This is, again, part of our caveman programming. If we're yes. right, then the chances are we're not in danger. Okay? It's that fundamental. It's the same reason we're negatively biased, because it's better to assume that something is wrong and be proved wrong than it is to assume everything is fine yes. and then be proved wrong, because that's much more disastrous. Um so we have to work really hard to overcome this negative bias when we're taking on board new information. That's why I'm like, I don't want anybody to feel that they shouldn't block um, other mm. social media users who are harassing them or just irritating them even, or that they just don't want to see their content. You know what? I block animal cruelty videos because I know that it happens. I try and give to those sort of charities when I can. I do not want to be bombarded with that sort of imagery. I find it very upsetting. So I'm not going to gain any more by engaging with that. So I just block it. I don't block everybody who has a completely different opinion to me because I don't want to exist in an echo chamber. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, with me, it's something that I've increasingly done is try to actually avoid posting political things um, or getting involved with these with with movements and stuff like that on my um, social media, I'll do it. I'll do it maybe on my yep, Facebook, same. my private Facebook, you know, which is my friends and stuff like that, my circle, the people I know. But I've tried to avoid doing it on Twitter and things like that because um, I've I've just found that it's bad for my health. I found that it's bad for my health. And there's also this expectation that people seem to say, which is if you have a social media, um, you should be you should be one hundred you should always be vocal about the things that you believe in. And the fact of the matter is is that you don't owe anybody your opinion. You don't owe anybody your voice. Um, if you believe in something strongly and you want to rally and push, then absolutely do that. I support that. And there are things which, you know, I I can't stop myself from saying on social media, things which really do matter to me. But there are also things which really, really matter to me, which are actually matter so much that I don't want to talk about them on social media, that I don't want to just use a hashtag and reblog something, because that's not necessarily meaningful um and it's also it's very demanding um and the impact doesn't necessarily have an you know doesn't necessarily introduce anything and also i don't like doing it on twitter because often these are incredibly complex and deeply emotional issues and i cannot in good faith write out everything that i feel and mean in one soundbite of a tweet not for something that big. Um, I just can't do it. So I don't do it. I avoid it instead because it's just, it's too much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, you also have to bear in mind that anything you put out on the internet is there. Even if you go back and delete it, it's there. Yeah. That's it. It's not like writing in a diary. You're, you're not confessing your thoughts to yourself for your perusal later. Um, it's there. That's it. You have to assume that somebody would have at some point sort of taken a, sh a screenshot of it or something. 
basically never, ever, ever put something on the internet which you wouldn't be happy kind of um, showing to your parents and your boss and random strangers in the street. And pretty much the entire world. Yeah, but what I mean yeah. is, imagine it. Imagine writing it in your like writing it out, and then being like, "Hey, mum, dad, I want you to read this." I should say, you know, there are some people who have very kind of anonymous, you know, parts on the internet, so that they can express themselves because they can't express themselves at home. And I do understand that, you know, there's a balance to be found. But particularly on things like Twitter, where usually you're using your own name, where your own identity is up there, um, you know, there's there's a danger. There's a danger there. Yeah. So there's also a danger in anonymity. Um, I completely understand people who do it for safety. Yes, I really, really do understand that, and I, you know, no judgment at all. I do know of many, many people who do it not for safety, but because they're less accountable. And I think that's a really slippery slope to start. Yeah, on. it's. <sighs> This sort of this conversation about social media brings me on to just talking about another dystopian piece uh, called The Circle. It's a book by, and the author has just completely gone out of my head. Um, <laughs> What's uh, they doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave Eggers. That's it. So The Circle by Dave Eggers. Um, and there was a movie a few years ago with Emma Watson in it um and yeah so the, the the book came out in 2013 and it's actually very very good and the book and the film i believe the endings are a little bit different i'm not going to go into that um, but what i will talk about is the kind of some of the concepts that appear in the circle now the circle is kind of like a te technological sort of like community um sort of business um and essentially, it's all about kind of social media. And they have this concept, which is great. And it sounds great as a soundbite, you know, which is the accountability. People will be held accountable now. You know, we'll be able to see stuff. People can no longer just hide things or, you know, people will be held accountable. Knowledge will be shared. We're not going to hold it back against one another. Everyone's going to be equal. Everyone's going to have equal access to knowledge. You know, connectivity. People are going to be able to connect from all sides of the world. Equal opportunities to connect, to work, to, com uh, you know, to, build, to come together, to be creative together. These all sound like fantastic things. And the reality is that it, they're, they're creating a surveillance state. And they're, and they're creating yeah. a surveillance state by encouraging people to be the surveillance. Um, to the extent that they have something called going transparent where you are literally, you have a camera on yourself the whole day. People see everything you do. They see, uh, uh, with the exception, I think you can go to the bathroom on your own and um, and you can turn it off at night or something like that, um, as long as you're in bed. Um, they can see everything. They can see your emails. They can see your calls. They can hear you. They can see all of your conversations. Um, and this is something which kind of people are, are you know, do are meant to do optionally or kind of pushed into doing um and they they get fans and they're constantly being watched um and obviously there's kind of this this breakdown of what happens when you do that the extremes of human beings are not meant to be watched and here's something else that you've got to be aware of everybody everybody has said and will continue to say something which is offensive to 
someone else. Something which someone will get angered by. Something which someone will disagree with. That is inevitable. It doesn't even have to come from a place of cruelty or bigotry or anything like that. It is just inevitable. Um, we cannot be held to account for literally everything in our entire lives because people make mistakes. And who who gets to hold us to account? If the whole world holds us to account, um, there's going to be a small portion of that who will disagree with us. Okay? And that's not necessarily a reasonable group of people who are going to be disagreeing with us. But it's very easy to once again, using these sound bites, using these ideas, by worming things down to something very, very simple, it's very, very easy to turn people against us. And that became so obvious during, actually during elections, where very small things like snub campaigns have been used against oppositions. Rather than fighting for what I can do for you, it's look at what that person has done there. Look at what they've done. Creating entire falsehoods, making suggestions. Again, hate to bring up Brexit, but the whole, let's spend this money on our NHS. They never said, we're going to. They said, we could. And then literally the day Brexit came through, they said, well, we never promised we were going to do that. We put it on a bus, but... <laughs> yeah, but they never promised that they were actually going to do it. They said, uh, "Let you know, we can. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I, I know that would be my point. People are stupid and people don't ask questions, um, which is a never-ending source of aggravation for me. Um, okay, so are we really living in a dystopia? Um, yes and no, really. It kind of depends on your viewpoint. So, you know, from a position of slightly more hope, it depends on it, it depends on how you look at the world. Um, the world, I mean, the world as a whole is not a monolith. Broadly speaking, though, there's never been a better time in human history to be born, to be alive. So, yes, there are places where certain groups don't get the same sort of rights and things. But most people in most places of the world know that they are entitled to the same rights as everyone else, even if they don't yet receive them. Um, and that's, a, believe it or not, that's a phenomenal historical breakthrough. That's huge. Regardless of class, gender, uh, sexuality, um, ethnicity, religion, anything like that, most people are aware that they should be entitled to the same rights. Yeah. That's such a huge mental paradigm shift. Yeah. There's also, you know, something to be said for if you're listening to this podcast right now, then you have access to some kind of mechanical computer. You have a computer that could be your phone, it could be your laptop, it could be a family computer. You have access to a computer. You have access to the internet, um, whether you actually have it in your home or whether you've gone to a cafe or to a friend's house or something like that. You can access the internet. For the most part, I'm imagining that most of our listeners have got a roof over their heads right now, um, that they have food in the fridge, that they, well, that they have a fridge that they can access. For those in the UK, they have access to the NHS right now, free national health care. You know, we go back a few hundred years ago um, and you tell people, I want, what does, what does a utopia look like for them? And they might say, oh, to just, to be able to, you know, to have, to, to be able to have a roof over my head, to be able to have access to knowledge, to be able to educate my children, to be able to eat good, you know, to be able to afford meat once a week, to be able to, etc. Um, and again, I understand that there are people in the UK who, 
currently do not have those things. But comparatively, the way that we live now as people is the was the utopia of someone a few hundred years ago. And for me, that's a really positive thing, because I wouldn't look around my world now and say, this is a utopia. I wouldn't. I see I see suffering, I see corruption, um, I see all these things that are wrong with the world. But the fact that this is, this is the utopia of someone else, that there are people who are currently in the world right now who are living in regimes and cruelty, who look over at the UK, for example, and say, that is the ideal place for me to live, that is a utopia in comparison, um, is positive in the sense that for Britain it's positive because it means that change has happened we have changed things have developed and it and in order to sort of recognize that this is no longer a, 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 a utopia it means that we are pushing forward again to continue building a utopia yeah definitely so i mean madeline and i are not saying that there's no work to be done on various issues which we we really don't have time to get into unfortunately no. um but you know it's possible to have a year like 2020 where terrible things happened and yet at the same time, so much good actually happened in that year as well. Yeah. We talked about it a bit in our New Year's Eve, ep New Year's episode. And, um, you know, it, it's worth, I'm going to keep saying it till I'm blue in the face, but the news is negatively biased and we are negatively biased creatures yeah. as well. So we're more likely to remember yeah. the bad stuff. Um, we need to remember that, you know, quite a lot of good stuff happens. We don't consider good things to be newsworthy, therefore they don't get reported. It's worth going and seeking them out. You know, you've got, we've talked about the internet, we've got the internet, there's yes. a lot of good stuff there as well. You know, foil the algorithms by going and looking for good stuff, and then it'll start showing yeah, you absolutely. more of the good stuff. Cultivate the experience that you want to have online. Be aware of it as well. And also be aware of the fact that, yes, it is really important to stay tuned with what's happening to stay tuned with current affairs but don't just trust sound bites um and don't allow them to completely inform your opinion because it's very easy to get sort of pulled into a mob mentality uh where you feel like okay i don't understand it but lots of other people do and they say this and i trust them i get that it's very easy to do that i've done it Pretty much everybody has done it. Seeking information is difficult, particularly when you don't necessarily know which sources of, of information to trust. But try. Really try. And remember, you don't owe anyone. You don't have to put those things on social media. You don't have to live transparently on social media. If you don't want to, it is your experience. And social media is not a reflection of real life. You could be someone who heavily campaigns in real life. That doesn't mean you need to do that on social media. You might just want to go to social media to look at bunny pictures. And that is okay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, it's really important to stop the spiral. Yeah. So when we're, we're negatively biased, we're taking on all the bad things that are happening in the news... Um, quite often it's the same thing that's being reported in slightly different ways each time. If you actually listen to the stories, you're kind of like, there's no new material here. But the fact that they're repeating it is giving it additional weight. So noticing that can really help. Um, 
you need to stop the spiral because on one hand people do the the watership down thing where they go thun you know where a rabbit freezes because it's literally so afraid mm-hmm. it doesn't know what to do and um, you know if you've ever seen a rabbit in headlights yeah. you'll know exactly what that means um and people do it too people do it too when they're given too much information that is overwhelming yeah. um they just freeze they'll just, they'll just freeze and they yeah. won't act in case they do the wrong thing um where the real thing to do is to start deconstructing the information that comes yeah. in one bite at a time that's all you don't have to have all the answer right away um the other mm. thing people do they go into denial so who here and who listening to the podcast has spoken to someone who thinks COVID 19 <laughs> a conspiracy i was in the bakery uh two weeks ago uh, i was picking up a pasty for alan because <laughs> i'm you know i'm nice like that and this woman corralled me in a corner and started talking about her daughter who had died just up the road 30 years before. And she went into graphic detail about her daughter's burns and the fact that, you know, she, I thought I, I couldn't decide what it was that started. And she said, oh, she had skin like you and hair your colour because, you know, you're, you know, the same really fair complexion. So they, she was so burned that, that I didn't recognise her kind of thing. And I thought, oh, my God, that's awful. I'm so sorry thinking she's mm-hmm. in the area i don't know why but maybe this is a pilgrimage to her daughter's site of death type thing so was, she was playing on my sympathies to get her to listen to her and then she started oh, no. talking about how covid was a conspiracy and we should all trust in the lord kind of thing and she actually dropped christian ish i say christian it's not fair to say christian her own version of christian stuff because it wasn't affiliated with any church or particular organization of christianity um, propaganda that she had printed off herself into my bakery bag and it was it was just I was like I can't believe you just did that but I can't touch it because you've just used your hand to put it in there yeah it was nuts <sighs> yeah no I came I came across a fair <laughs> amount of that when last last year when I went up to Glastonbury with my partner and um yeah <laughs> uh, <sighs> It's it's it it beguiles the mind, it really really does. <laughs> but again, I can understand how it's happened, why why it's happened, why people believe it, why people don't trust in the information that they're being given by newspapers and stuff like that. Uh, I can I can understand it, and why people trust in certain other newspapers. It's yeah, it's easy to understand. So it's a dangerous thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you're halfway there. You shouldn't trust exactly what you're told on the news. You should go out and seek yeah. verification for yourself. That's the other half of it. <laughs> um, anyway, so you might have terrible things that happen, um, but you'll probably find that they're outweighed yeah. by good things happening by about six or seven to one. If you're actually going to look. Um, very brief. Uh, what, what about a false utopia? Are we living in a false <laughs> utopia? <laughs> Again, I don't think the government is organised to be a false utopia. I think there are places which kind of put themselves out as being false utopias or which feel like false utopias, um, places that exist today where where everything looks great and wonderful, but people are kind of spirited away. And if you fall onto the sort of, you know, the underside of, of a false utopia, if you fall into the into the prison system, um, it's a nightmare. It's it's totally dystopian. It's terrifying. There are places that exist um, where that is a reality. I don't tend to think of Britain as a false utopia, though, because uh, at this point they're just being honest about the corruption and no one's holding them to account. It, it's not false. It's just, <laughs> they're 
just flat out telling us. Yeah. It's like everyone everyone is so yeah, everyone is so jaded. Everyone is so tired. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, we're allowed to question yes. the government and criticise them and, you know, we'll keep doing it, but it's not having a great deal of effect because they are so entitled that they're just wedged in there like fucking ticks. I, yeah, well, it, it's it's the whole sort of like, a well, we found out that they were definitely making money from that and they're just been giving these contracts away to, you know, someone they met down the pub. And and which and the response is just yeah well everybody's like that they're all like that what can we do no we should be doing something <laughs> it's just it's, they're not even covering it up now <laughs> there is no cover up mm. it's just straight out there and no one's doing anything so I wouldn't call it a false utopia I think it's just a very obvious dystopia where they're not even bothering to pretend it isn't <laughs> but yeah even then most of us still have more privileges than anyone could have ever imagined even sort of 50 or 60 years ago yeah agreed agreed um and it is worth remembering that it is worth remembering that human beings have gotten better that things are getting better even if they feel terrible right now we are still progressing um and we will continue to do so we just have to um, but the best way to do that is to imagine what can be done to make things better rather than just to accept that everything is bad. Yeah. Um, and I, just a, a final sort of thing on the social media thing in this respect is that, yes, there's absolutely work to be done and it's fine to have causes that are close to your heart, but you mustn't allow personal anger to become the end in and of itself because that's not going to achieve anything that's beneficial as a whole. That that's you know, anger kind of feeds on itself. So if you don't give it a healthy outlet, um, then it it just gets bigger. I don't want to go all Yoda on you here, and it'd be really really <laughs> easy to do that with this, this particular quote. Um, what I'm getting at is starting a big cancellation process against someone just because you don't like their opinion is not useful. Um, it would be far better to be able to entertain their opinion and say, I still don't agree with you and here's why. And try and do it calmly. Take the emotion out of it. As we've said before, you know, emotions, you may not be able to help what you feel, but you can absolutely help what you do with those emotions. Um, and if you cannot control what you do with those emotions, step away from the keyboard. Go for a walk. Go and do something else. Yeah. I think it's also worth saying for instance, if you're a trans person, if you're trans and you come across someone on the internet who is spouting anti-trans information um, and they're just replying with hate, this is not someone you have to correct. It is not your duty to no. inform. Um, if you sort of, you know, have this whole thing where you, where you kind of try to reply to them, where you insult them, where you, um, or even where you try to educate them, even if you try to be pleasant about it, the one who's going to get hurt is you. And it's the same. It's the same if you accidentally end up talking yeah. to an incel or something. Uh, it's basically pity them because they are very very unhappy people, and then block them and move on. Yeah. Now, it might be that you feel that you want to actually take that battle, but that's got to be a decision that you have to be prepared for. Don't feel like you have to do it. Do it if you want to do it, but, you know, being prepared for the consequences of that, which can be incredibly draining. Definitely. 
Okay, my final bit on 1984, because, you know, I need to spread the trauma around, guys. Thanks. <laughs> That's okay. You've read it, you know what's going <laughs> um, I think, for me, the darkest message of 1984 was the Ministry of Love's endgame. Mm. And its endgame is the destruction of all human pleasure, happiness, and emotion. If you think about it, they could have killed Winston yeah. quite easily. They chose to break him down, torture him, destroy his love for Julia, which was a truly disturbing yeah. moment. That's what the Room 101 yeah. stuff is about, guys, for those who haven't read the book. And eventually made him embrace and endorse their views. The whole point of this is obviously that the Ministry of Love does not want to create martyrs because martyrs yeah. cause uprisings. They then paraded him around as their poster boy publicly for some time, knowing that they were going to execute him in the future. Winston even knows it, but by that point, he'll say whatever he they want him to say. He's been yeah. so thoroughly broken down at that point. Um, it, it, one of the most chilling speeches I've ever read is when the agent dealing with Winston explains the reasoning behind it all. All people will be the same. There will be no sex, there will be no gender, there will be no desire, no enjoyment, no literature or music or art. Or art. Um, the whole point is to kill the human soul yeah. and create this perfect worker state. Um, and each time somebody rebels, they they don't go, oh God, they almost overthrew us. They go, okay, we've learned yeah. from it, we'll get better, we'll get better at crushing these people, at destroying them. And it's it's something that you know may not have come up for a lot of people, but revolutions, revolts and things tend to happen when a tyrannical or totalitarian mm. regime just eases the pressure just a tiny amount yeah just enough for somebody to stick their head up above the parapet and say this isn't right and then everyone follows them but the ministry of love are kind of like you know we're not, we're deliberately not easing up on you at all and we will put yeah. the pressure down on you we're fine yeah, with crushing into the dust until you have no personality at all <laughs> it's also i like 1984 in the way that they kind of they look at what it, what it is to be kind of part of rebellion because ultimately what happens is that Winston is on his own there is no big group there's no there's no sense of trust there's no they all band together um yeah yeah even Julia the woman he falls for is not you know she's interested in being able to follow her own inclinations but her attitude as you know many of our attitudes are was oh that's all political rubbish I don't give a shit about that yeah yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no right. We've all, you know, we're a bat. We've banded together. Um, and I think it's it's very good because very often with dystopian fiction now, you get this sense of okay, we've all come together. We're all this kind of this righteous army, um, and that's not how it. And we're all friends as well. That's not how it really, really works. Um, and you you no. see that you can see that absolutely in places where you have civil wars going on um you just have to look at syria um and what's happening in syria which is there's just there's no organization it's people fighting other people the rebels will sometimes fight other rebels everybody's gonna have different opinions about what's right what isn't right and then there are the people who are just caught in the middle of it there are the people who just have yeah. to live with it um and again, it's this idea that 
there is this one kind of thing that everybody can get behind um, and that everybody is of one opinion, that everybody is all in one side. And again, that's why the soundbite things are so scary because every lots of people can get behind a soundbite without actually really understanding the full context of the situation. And this is not, again, me talking down to people. I'm not trying to say people who you know, uh, that all people are stupid and that people who are out there putting out these sound bites or that people who are fighting using them are inherently stupid. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there is an inherent danger in it. You know, it, it's the same sort of danger that there is for having having a political movement of any kind that is decentralised. I understand why, because if you have something yeah. decentralised, it belongs to everyone. On the other hand, if you have something decentralised, it belongs to everyone and nobody, once again, nobody is flying the plane. You need, and I'm, I hate to say it, but if you don't want to attract the sort of people who just like to stir things up for shits and giggles or who just are looking for a cause to march along to and they don't really care about anything, if you want to keep control of the force you're going to unleash, you need to have a centralised mm -hmm. platform. Yeah. It's, it's really dangerous. <laughs> it yeah, it, it always makes me laugh in, in that people are like, oh, well, you know, true communism, like actual communism when written on paper works, it, it works. And we know that it works because we've seen, you know, people who live in communes and they're all happy and they're working together. And I'm like, great. Everybody who lives in that commune has consented to the idea of living in a communist way. They've all consented to it. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work. If if everybody is consenting to something and they've all gone in, then that's not a true experiment of what would happen. That's not a true, you know, result of what would happen if you applied it to all of humanity, because there are people who are not going to be happy in that situation. There are people who are going to have difficulty in that situation. There are people who are going to be malcontent in that situation. There's always going to be somebody who is going to suffer because of that situation, and that's just the way that it is. Definitely. Um, and. Just as a link back to 1984, again, with social media, um, it's the whole idea that, you know, that the Ministry of Love wanting to crush basically the human soul. I'm not saying social media is out to crush the human soul, but I am saying there are people who use social media in that way or they use it for their own ends. And that can be your really miserable troll sat in their own mother's basement and you know, just going out and deciding they're going to pick on certain people yeah. because that's that's how they get their kicks. That's what makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. To groups like, um, you know, there's there's a massive incel movement on, on the internet and it's not difficult for people to get radicalised into it. Um, to things which are much more sceptical. So, you know, Russia has this, this huge... Like, <laughs> corporation where they've, they've got people who are employed to basically shit post stuff on social media yeah um, th this is really really well documented i'm not just picking on russia i'm pretty sure everyone else has tried this a little bit it's just that russia's really really good at it um yeah they interfered with the elections in america they fed the fire for things for brexit over here and most people would be kind of like, well, what's the motive? Well, the motive is that if all your neighbours are constantly fighting amongst themselves, then if anyone ever decided to make a move and they were feeling a bit invady, for example, um, it would be a lot easier because they'd be disorganised. China is getting really, really good at this. This is something we should yeah. pay attention to. Ah, <sighs> well, oh. <laughs> so all that sounds... <laughs> I was going to say, 
all that sounds really, really damning and difficult. But the thing is, if you know about it, you can do something about it. And the measures you can take about take against it are yeah. really, really simple. Just be careful. <laughs> be careful. Um, if you're not sure, don't repost it. In fact, don't repost it. <laughs> Uh, it's fine if it's still sort of like, oh, my new album dropped this week and you're kind of like, oh, I love that music. Hey, everyone, you should listen to this. This is cool. That's fine. But if it's a weird political opinion, um, don't just repost it without seeking verification. In fact, for any any piece of information that seems to, to be billed as fact, seek three independent, if you can manage it, sources of verification. That goes for the news as well, because the news is billed as entertainment these days. But remember, most of the world exists off of the internet, so maybe go and see some of it. <laughs> the last thing I'd say is the internet is not a place to seek validation for yourself or, you know, against your insecurities. It's not. It's not going to be kind to you. No. You might meet people who then become genuine friends yes. and you message them privately, and that's great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But just randomly throwing your your vulnerabilities out onto the internet is a really, really bad idea. It, it's dangerous. It's it's very dangerous. Um, and again, it's something that a lot of people have done. And it and I think the reason a lot of people have done it is because it's kind of a bit of a trend. You kind of think, oh, that's what it's for. So you put up blog posts. Um, you and again, I, this is something I've done. I've written some very honest kind of uh, posts on my website. Um, about personal things like that and I made a very conscious decision to do so but I didn't do it for validation um, as in I, I didn't I don't need someone to reply to that to make me feel better I don't need someone there to make to kind of to help me kind of coordinate myself and my feelings um, that's something I go to you know with my friends um, but in the past, when I was little, you know, tween, tween Madeleine, when I was very, very young, um, I did do things like that. And it's something that all of my friends did and that a lot of other people on the internet did and a lot of people still do to this day. Um, because there's there's a sense of, okay, that's how I can get validation, particularly if you're not getting validated at home or because you, if you can't express yourself at home. But you've got to be careful. Don't go on to... Instagram and, and put your entire self-worth on the way that people compliment you on Instagram or on Tumblr or on Twitter or the way that people interact with you um, or how many reblogs you get. Don't do that. Um, your self-worth is, is not tied to the internet. No. In fact, it's not tied to compliments or what other people think of you. This is really difficult and it's something that comes probably with age, but try and build this strong core sense of yourself you have value because you believe you have value and you value yourself anything else is gravy yeah after that easier said than done but it's it's worth doing <laughs> easier said than done but you know it's it's absolutely an aspirational thing to go for i think yeah absolutely okay <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, guys, um, it is time for us to wrap it up. Before we do, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe you've got one for us. Um, I have, and it's quite opposite for this episode. It's a non-fiction book called We Are Bellingcat, and it is by Elliot Higgins, who was one of the major leaders of Bellingcat. Um, if you don't know who Bellingcat are, Bellingcat are a non-profit organisation, entirely internet-based, who whose main mission 
is to verify stories, to find out the truth behind mm-hmm. things. Um, it started with you remember the you remember that time when a couple of Russians came over just to see the beauties of Salisbury. Yep, cathedral? absolutely. Because it's is beautiful, is is well known cathedral, oldest clock tower in the world, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and everyone was kind of like, "No, nah, you came over to kill that person who was over here, who may well have been a Russian agent at one point, and was you know trying to live out his final days in the UK." Um, and you know, Bellingcat kind of—they weren't called Bellingcat then, but the the guys behind it kind of got behind it and managed to verify using free open source internet surveillance. They're not hacking. They're not doing anything dodgy. Um, they're just sort of speaking to people on the internet and using things like geolocation. It's really fascinating how mm-hmm. they do it uh, to find out the truth of things. And uh, again, that that plane that was again shot down. Um, this is not just picking on Russia, by the way, but it, these two things happen to be <laughs> Russian incidents. Um, that plane that was shot down over the Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, passenger plane, and you know, obviously, Russia, Russia came back and said, oh, we don't, we, we don't actually have the capability to do that." Um, and you know, Bellingcat actually proved that they had photographic evidence um, using using literally mm-hmm. using Google Maps, Google Earth, and photographic evidence to say actually you did and we noticed that it was here at this time and on these dates on these coordinates um so that their entire mission is not to make Mm. lots of money it's to hold people accountable it's to hold the big guys accountable for the little guys it's a really really interesting book um in some respects it's a little bit terrifying but i am so glad they're out there doing this you should check it out (laughs) that's brilliant thank you so much um well, what do you guys think? Are we living in a dystopia? Is it utopia? Are there things we missed? Do you disagree with us? And do feel free to disagree with us. Remember, always look up your sources, even if you hear it from us. We are not reliable. No, <laughs> I like to think we're reliable, but, you know, we, we're we human. We, we try. <laughs> we try. We do try and verify our sources, but yeah. you know what? Anyone can make mistakes. And if we're wrong, we'd rather hear about it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So do get in touch with us. What do you think? Do you disagree with us? Let us know. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Twitter, our Tumblr, or our Facebook account. For now, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, guys, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.